were slightly busting that up. I don't know, it's like, don't worry. Um, you probably don't want them uh, recorded doing the quiz. You're going to start a podcast, so it's not start with the audience interaction. Like a This one here as well, which is another recording thing, so hopefully between all of them, you should, if you just kind of speak there is back, a little Yeah, because that's what I plan to do. These things are a bit... Do you want to be happy to play? Um, yeah, would it be better for you if I put that on? We, we have multiple ones, so whichever one you prefer is... Um, if you need me to have a mic near me, can I prefer to use that yeah. one? Yeah, I'll use that one. Um, is your colleague okay using swapping or doing any? We're tag teaming for the three sessions, so it's probably easier actually. Okay, fantastic. I'm just going to check everyone. Yes, no one knocks outside. Okay, you've got about two more minutes on number matching, and then I'm going to ask you to start discussing it. So try and get to the end of your sheet.
2007-2008, in the first five years of that crisis, spending on weaponry increased by 24%. And it's arguable that one of the things that catapulted Greece over the fiscal cliff was a series of ridiculous multi-billion euro arms deals they undertook with Germany for submarines that they didn't need and only one of the six submarines has ever been delivered. But the German government refused to cancel the contracts for the remainder of the submarines. I study mainly 
the formal arms trade as it's called, state to state or large companies selling to governments or to other companies. Things like jet fighters, aircraft carriers, tanks. But as important is the small arms trade, which is worth about eight and a half billion dollars a year. So around four and a half to five million firearms sold every year. And the reason I mention that is because while the figures are not huge, the impact of the trade in small and light weapons is catastrophic. They're deadly, very easy to transport, and are responsible for the large majority of deaths in conflicts. It's estimated that about 525,000 people die every year through conflicts and homicides linked to small and light weapons. Unsurprisingly, the US buys and sells almost as much weaponry as the rest of the world combined. The other big producers of weaponry include Germany, the UK, France, Russia, Israel, and China. Now what you'll notice about that group is that it's pretty much the UN Security Council, <laughs> which is why regulation and control of the arms trade is pitiful. There are regional regulations. The EU common position on arms export is probably the gold standard of export regulation. There is an international arms trade treaty passed in the UN last July. And most countries have national laws and regulations governing their arms exports. But the vast, vast majority of them are never enforced because of a lack of political will. And I'll explain how they get away with that in a moment. The point that I want you to go away with is that besides the obvious, which is that the trade in weapons promotes, fuels, and often intensifies conflict and repression, its impact on the world is far broader than that. I've seen, and I'm going to explain to you how, in my own personal experience, the way in which this trade corrodes democracy, undermines the rule of law, and often obliterates human rights. The reason for this is simple. The trade in weapons operates in something of a parallel legal universe. The people who run this business are a combination of obviously the weapons makers, often called defense contractors or defense companies, the biggest in the United Kingdom being BAE systems. But they work hand in glove with their governments, but as importantly, with political parties and politicians. Around the world, defense companies are amongst the largest contributors to political campaigns. To give you just one example, Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor or Prime Minister, who oversaw the reunification of Germany. For the 17 years that he was leader of the Christian Democratic Union, his party in Germany, that party was funded primarily from the proceeds of legal and illegal arms deals that Germany undertook. 
Now, our governments and defense companies and military establishments who are extremely important in this nexus of what we describe as the national security elite, who are joined there by individual arms dealers, will argue that there is a distinction between the legal and the illegal trade. The legal trade being government-to-government -government trade, the formal trade. And if you take their definition, then that legal or formal trade is about 12 times larger than what they would describe as the illegal trade. <coughs> Anybody get 12 times? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to disappoint you. I would argue there's no such distinction. Okay? I've been investigating the arms trade for almost 15 years now. I have yet to come across an arms deal that does not involve some level of illegality. So even those of you who didn't get 12 times, if you left the question out, you still got the answer, right? <laughs> so why do I say that? First of all, the law that does exist in relation to the weapons trade is very, very seldom enforced. To give you an example, since United Nations arms embargoes have been introduced, we calculated when we wrote the book, that's myself and my research team, So, and the first edition came out in 2011, so we're probably talking accurately up to 2010. There were 502 recorded violations of UN arms embargoes, the selling of weapons into conflict zones, all countries against whom there was an arms embargo. 502 violations. Two of those resulted in any legal consequences. There is simply no willingness to enforce these laws, and there is no desire to prosecute those who break those laws and regulations because they are often tied in to our governments, our military establishments, or our intelligence establishments. Now, the other point I want to make very quickly is besides the distorting impact that this trade has on our economies in terms of spending, and you need to look no further than Trident in the United Kingdom to see the extent of that distortion. Where according to David Cameron, for calling for Trident not to be renewed, Jeremy Corbyn is now a threat to our security. Like Trident was going to keep us safe from anything or anybody. But what it does do is ensure that the state will continue to shrink the size of our public sector, will spend less on a wide variety of social services and benefits, and that our foreign policy, like that of the US, will be distorted towards war rather than diplomacy. It takes more people to run one aircraft carrier in the United States than the US as diplomats throughout the world. Today, the US is in the process of commissioning its 11th aircraft carrier. And to describe the United Kingdom on national security as the poodle of the United States would be accurate, but disrespectful to poodles. <laughs> the arms trade accounts for almost 40% of all corruption 
in global trade. 40%. When the United States Department of Commerce did a study of five years of commercial transactions that involved corruption by US companies, just over 50% of those cases turned out to be in the defense sector. So where do I come from with these, this sort of information? How can I say this publicly, in the media, in books, and not be sued? Because I experienced it firsthand. The way in which I came to the arms trade, I was very fortunate. I was born in South Africa during the apartheid years. I was, I suppose you could say in some slightly sick way, I was fortunate to be born white in an apartheid society. I joined the African National Congress in my late teens in South Africa and bizarrely found myself in 1994 as a member of parliament for the ANC. Because none of us who joined the organization ever imagined, one, that we would be in government, two, that we would be formal politicians. As Nelson Mandela was about to retire, and his successor taking office, South Africa decided to spend $10 billion on weapons that the country didn't need and has barely used today. $300 million of bribes were paid to the Minister of Defense, one other minister on the committee of six that decided what we would buy and from whom. The head of procurement in the Defense Force, the head of the Defense Force itself. Some of my fellow parliamentarians, including my chief whip, senior officials of the state arms company, and various business people close to the ANC. This was at a time when our then president, Thabo Mbeki, said that we did not have the fiscal resources to provide antiretroviral medication to the almost 6 million South Africans living with HIV or AIDS. In a study conducted by the School of Public Health at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, they calculated that as a consequence of that decision, in the five years after we decided to purchase these weapons, 365,000 South Africans died avoidable deaths. 54,000 babies avoidably were born HIV positive every year because we didn't have the resources to provide mother-to-child transmission treatment, supposedly. But we had the money to spend $10 billion on arms. With BAE Systems and their salesperson-in-chief, Tony Blair, who traveled to South Africa three times to sell the weapons, <coughs> selling us trainer jets, paying 115 million pounds in bribes, and of the 24 trainer jets, 12 have never left the ground because South Africa has no need of them, 
cannot afford the fuel to fly them. And the reality is that my own political organization, the ANC of Nelson Mandela, is a husk of what it was because of that arms transaction. Our own deputy president acknowledged that the organization in South Africa's government, from top to bottom, <coughs> is riven through by corruption. And where did it start? It started with the arms deal. So the primary arms dealers in today's world are not only the individuals you see in films like Lord of War, the individuals I interview who tell me it's a shame that Hitler wasn't able to finish his work because the world would have so fewer problems if he was. Yes, those are people committing huge evils. But the most influential arms dealers on the planet today are our political leaders. That's what we have to bear in mind. And unless we address the status quo of the global trade in arms, the world will continue to become a less democratic place, a more corrupt place, but perhaps most ironic of all, a more dangerous place. Thanks. We're going to have time for some... Can everyone hear me without this? No? Okay. So, thank you, Andrew. We're going to have time for some questions at the end. I'm just going to quickly look at the specific role of the UK. Now, Andrew's given us the global context. Um, he's, we've already talked about the devastating impact of the global arms trade and, um, and the, the massive waste involved in it and how... Most of the arms trade is supported by governments, including our own. Um, so here we go. Here's Cameron making one of those deals. Um, so I don't know if anybody's ever written to their MP or a government minister about the arms trade. Has, okay, what, what kind of response have you had? Um, like a sort of standard letter saying... Um, take the security of the country very seriously, thank you so much for your letter, blah, blah, blah. Nothing specific. So, I don't want to make you cynical about the democratic process, but the answer we get every time, and that a lot of people get, is that we don't need to worry about what the UK is doing, because it's the legal arms trade, and the UK has a responsible policy. It has a robust policy and some of the most rigorous export controls in the world. And it's great. It is a great policy. It says it won't permit the sale of arms when they could be used for repression or in human rights abuses, or where there's a risk they may be used in external aggression. I don't really know what anyone will need arms for once we eliminate all of those circumstances. But uh, that's what it says, and it's great, and that's similar. I mean, the International Arms Trade Treaty is problematic, but that's similar to the standards that are supposed to be enshrined in that. So, policy, great. What it does, though, is really different. Um, so, we are supporting repression. 
the, the authoritarian states in the Middle East and the Gulf are among some of our biggest arms customers. So in 2011, when the Arab uprisings began, um, it suddenly some of those chickens came back to roost. Um, Bahrain, in February 2011, quickly tried to stamp out democracy protests there. The UK had provided tear gas, crowd control ammunition, sniper rifles, all of the same type of equipment that was being used against the protesters there. Um, it's a shame Saeed couldn't have been there. Um, he, was, he was at those protests on the Pearl Square roundabout that some of you may remember that were brutally cleared, um, injured and then imprisoned by the security forces in Bahrain for speaking to the international media about his experiences. Um, a month later, these vehicles were sent by Saudi Arabia containing their troops into Bahrain. These vehicles were made by BAE in Newcastle and sold and promoted with the support of the UK government. They went in there to support Saudi uh, Bahraini forces so to repress the protests. Um, this is some of our tear gas in Hong Kong made by uh, UK company Kemring. Here's it arriving. Um, these vehicles were used on the streets of uh, uh, in, in streets of Libya in February 2011. On the left, you can oh, I'm standing right in front of this. On the left, you can see them in a factory in the UK before they were shipped out to Libya. Um, this man has just found his brother's body among um, the results of a massacre by Gaddafi forces. The Gaddafi's son commanded the unit that was responsible for this massacre. The UK both armed and trained that unit and invited them to the embassy for drinks. Um, more of Kemring's tear gas in Egypt. Um, some stuff sold a, lot, uh, a little bit earlier, um, I think back in the 90s, still turning up in Kuwait. Kuwait 20 years later, being used again against uh, protesters, stateless people in Kuwait protesting for their rights. So this is how we've responded to democracy movements and their brutal repression. We were supplying equipment before, the type of equipment that's used to suppress it, suppress protests. It's been a great business <coughs> opportunity. Massive increases in nearly all of those countries since the uprisings. So also we're not going to sell arms anywhere where they might um, fuel external aggression. Um, except that in Libya we armed all sides in the conflict. We, the same missiles were supplied to Gaddafi, to rebel forces, and then used to bomb, <laughs> used by coalition forces in their bombing of Libya. We have, so we're quite happy to sell arms to both Russia and Ukraine, despite all of our concerns about tension and conflict there. Still arming Israel, despite the fact that we repeatedly have seen the attacks on Gaza and then evidence that UK weapons have been used in those attacks. Arms sales have continued. Um, this, is, this is Yemen, uh, a picture taken in June. The conflict there has, the bombing campaign there has not received anywhere near enough attention. Um, 
Saudi-led bombing, devastating Yemen, killing thousands of civilians, a humanitarian disaster. I'm sure a lot of you here know much more about it. Um, the the Saudi-led bombing campaign is being carried out again with BAE's fighter jets. Um, and we're continuing to supply the bombs that are being used in that campaign as well. That's happening right now. And only after nine months of evidence of war crimes and attacks is the government beginning to say, maybe it should investigate and maybe we shouldn't be supplying weapons. So it's hard to see how that export controls policy is really working. Um, so the control of the arms trade is what the government says it's doing, but really it's putting most of its effort into promoting it. This is the focus of government. We have an entire government unit which is devoted to promoting arms sales, hidden away in UK trade and investment, um, which is about promoting all UK exports. But at this point I should probably mention that arms exports as a percentage of our total exports are only account for um, about, let me get this right, 1.5% of our overall exports, actually a bit less, it's about 1.4 at the moment. Um, yet the staff, out of all of the staff devoted, uh, that are devoted to promoting UK trade and exports in general, 54% of those are focused on promoting the arms trade. So there's a massive imbalance between what the government is focused on. Um, so this, here's the head of that uh, unit, a very well-paid civil servant, talking to the King of Jordan at an international arms fair. Like any other trade event, but everything that's for sale is weapons. They're bringing, they bring together all the big arms companies and then all the big buyers. This is an international one. Oh, this is, this is Cameron. We bring him on board at important moments. This is him straight after the Egyptian revolution. You may remember he went out to talk about democracy, but he took a team of eight arms company representatives with him. So that's that visit. This is what happens in London every two years. Massive weapons fair organized with the support of the government. Um, so anything you might want to buy from a tank to battleships are on display. Um, this is the Russian state arms export company that has provided most of Assad's weapons that are being used in Syria. This is them in Farnborough in the UK promoting their weapons. So despite any apparent disagreements we might have, we're still happy to facilitate their business. Um, Brazilian tear gas company, this is turned up in Turkey, Bahrain, all over the place. They can display in London as well. And the, the companies, the countries that they're promoting their weapons to, such as Turkey and Bahrain, are invited to send official delegations to this arms fair. So we're not just facilitating the UK arms trade for the benefit of our economy, we'll talk about those myths later, we're just facilitating international deals that the UK has no hope of controlling. This is um, Elbit Systems, whose this was taken, I took this in July last year at the Farnborough International Air Show. Um, they were showing glossy displays of drone attacks and explosions. At the very same time, they were happening for real in Gaza. 
using these weapons and we were facilitating their business here in the UK. And this is um, a, rep a military delegate from Bahrain checking out BAE's Typhoon jets, the same ones Saudi are using in Yemen and that the UK government is desperately trying to flog to everyone in the Middle East. Um, and the, their focus on pushing that is a big factor in why they're not prepared to speak out against human rights abuses and why they're completely prepared to talk about how well Bahrain is reforming despite a massive crackdown on freedom of expression. But they'd like us to buy BAE's, they'd like them to buy BAE's fighter jets. And this is Charles in Saudi Arabia doing exactly the same thing to help push another deal for those same fighter jets. Um, yes. He, did, he, he, he literally went and did a dance to try and get an answer deal. So that's depressing. For whose benefit is this happening? Um, well, as Andrew very well outlined, the government would like to tell us, standing right in front of the sign, the government would like to tell us that arms sales make us safer. They make us more secure. All of this security technology, all of these weapons floating around. But actually, we know that for the government, conflict, uh, for the government of the business, especially arms companies, conflict is a business opportunity. So this is a quote from an arms industry representative, which um, he said during uh, the UK's role in the conflict in Libya. He said, this is turning into the best shop window for competing aircraft for years, more even than Iraq in 2003. This is, a, this is something we see time and again from the arms industry. And one thing that we often do is we go to the BAE system's annual general meeting and cause a little bit of chaos there. But whenever there is conflict, they really see this as a business opportunity. It's an opportunity to show off some of their weaponry in action. Again, this is from Defence Minister Gerald Howarth, and again, this is during the, the Libya conflict. He says, we liberated the Iraqis from a tyrant. We liberated Libya from a tyrant. Frankly, I want to see UK business benefit from the liberation that we've given to their people. It would be funny if it wasn't true. The government like to justify the arms trade by telling us that it's good for jobs. We know that it doesn't make the world safer. We know that all it does is fuel conflict, fuel repression. But we're told that we have to have an arms trade. It's absolutely vital for UK manufacturing. There'd be mass unemployment in this country if we didn't have an arms trade. But actually, we've done some of the maths, and we know that there are around 55,000 jobs in the UK which are dependent on UK arms exports. That's less than 1.5 of UK manufacturing jobs. So when the government come to you and they tell you that uh, the arms trade is the future of British manufacturing, it's the future of engineering, of science, it's, you know, the cutting edge, um, it's what, what the UK has to offer the world, they're actually talking about a very tiny percentage of the UK workforce. However, despite being a tiny percentage of the UK workforce, we offer an enormous public subsidy to support these arms trade jobs. Arms exports are subsidised by around £700 million a year of taxpayers' money. £700 million. That is very expensive for 55,000 jobs. Oh, uh, and how much, uh, one of the answers that you have in your quiz sheet, as I've been just made aware, <laughs> is how much is the subsidy that the arms trade is, is worth, worth, how much is that per job per year? 
Who had an answer to this? I'm going to shout out. Yeah, it's 10,000. It's more than 10,000 per worker per year. More than 10,000 pounds. Um, and we met, like industry analysts recognise that this is this is not necessarily worth it. Um, we had the, uh, this is a quote from the Financial Times. It says you can have as many arms export jobs as you're prepared to waste public money subsidising. And the arms trade itself knows that it's not good for British business. Um, arms industry executives have described their trade as flatlining at best. So those are some very expensive jobs that we're subsidising. And actually, we need those skills. The arms trade is very good at enticing, especially young engineering graduates, um, into their business and coming to work for them. But we need those skills for absolutely vital work. We know that climate change is one of the biggest things which threatens us. It threatens all of our lives. If we want to talk about making the world a safer place, making the world more secure, we need to talk about climate change. And the UK is very, very well poised to play a role in redirecting some of the skills, some of the engineering and science and manufacturing skills which are currently sucked up by the arms trade. We could redeploy those to tackle some of the real threats that are facing us today. The UK has the largest wind resources in Europe. We also have substantial wave and tidal resources. And we know that this has the potential to create many more jobs than the arms trade offers us. Many, many more. So for WAVE, it's 60,000 jobs alone. So that's more than are currently employed by the entire arms export industry. If we look at some of those numbers, arms export subsidies are around 700 million pounds a year. Um, I think we've actually got that, uh, that research maybe. Um, arms R&D is actually 25 times higher um, than renewable energy research and development. So. It has come down. I think when we look at it again next year, it might have changed again, given the lack of government support again. Yeah, that is a wavy number. That tends to go in peaks and troughs. Um, but we know that the, you know, the research and development money that the government is willing to spend on the arms industry is substantially higher than that it is willing to spend on tackling climate change, which is a shame because renewable energy is something which is crying out for skills. There are massive, massive skills gaps, and they cannot get the funding to put into new projects, which longer term would be much, much better for our security. So one of the things that we've done at Campaigning Against Arms Trade to try and uh, counter some of these myths around the arms trade that's fantastic for jobs, that it's you know, the future of British manufacturing, is we've launched our Arms to Renewables campaign, and I would really encourage you to um, look this up after the session. Um, what we're talking about there is the need to shift government support, all of that government support that is currently given to the arms trade so you've seen the pictures, you know, the support that they give, um, organising arms fairs, the high-level political support, the massive amounts of funding. We could, if we could shift that into working for renewable energy, we could have uh, create an economy that was much more sustainable and that was working for a safer world rather than a more dangerous world for all of us. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to talk to you a little bit now about taking action against the arms trade. So hopefully we've outlined the problem and we've given you uh, one of the answers to the popular retort to what would happen if we didn't have an arms trade, everyone would be unemployed. Um, arms to renewables is one of the answers to that. After we've shown you like, all of these pictures of UK equipment being used across the world, um, it's definitely time to talk about how we can take action against it. Um, and I promise we didn't pay Andrew at the start to say that we were, say that we were wonderful. There's a lot of ways that we can take action against the arms trade. 
Some of the first things that you can do, and that I hope that you'll go away from this conference today um, and take part in, is exposing and challenging the arms trade. Public awareness around the arms trade is incredibly low. People don't know what we're making, what we're selling, how it's getting used. I mean, I saw quite a lot of shocked faces when I was using those job stats. Go away and tell people about this. If you go on the Campaign Against Arms Trade website, you can access an absolute wealth of information. One of the things that uh, we do a lot of look at is research into UK arms exports. Um, and we've you've taken all of that information um, and we've turned it from horrible spreadsheets into wonderful data browsers that you can go on our website and use. So if you go to www.cat.org.uk, you can have a look um, and you, we've actually made a searchable database of UK arms export licenses. Um, so you can see exactly what we're selling, roughly what it covers, this is components for military communications equipment, where we sold it to and when. And what can you do with that information? Well, you can take it to decision makers. You can use it to lobby MPs, to lobby the people in power, and to point out the UK's massive hypocrisy when it comes to the arms trade. We can get in the paper, scandals play a massive role in uh, delegitimizing the arms trade and are in a really important way um, to challenge it. Whenever there is a conflict, um, we're usually at the forefront of pointing out which bits of UK kit are being used. And you can also use it for public awareness. Now you might be looking at it thinking, I can't imagine the government putting out an ad about that. This is actually um, a cheeky tube advert um, which was designed by the Banksy team and which went out during the DSEI arms fair, that massive arms fair that happens in London that Sarah mentioned earlier. These mysteriously appeared one morning on um, tube trains all across London um, with the hashtag Stop Dicey. It was a really, really important piece of public awareness action. Um, it formed a, a lot of people don't realise the Dicey arms fair happens in London. Um, so yeah, you can use that information to kind of go out to the public um, with a bit of a rallying cry. And you can also, this is one of my favourites, uh, you can find your local arms company. Now you might live in a small town or village and you might be very surprised when you put your postcode into the Campaign Against Arms Trade company map to find out that the arms trade happens on your doorstep. Um, I grew up in a small town in Hertfordshire and we have three arms companies in a very tiny town. Um, so if you go to Company Associated, again, you can put your postcode into the company map. You can see what companies are based near you and you can also see a list of the export licenses they've applied for. So you can see which countries around the world it is they're supplying um, and we usually are able to provide a bit of company information. So you can find out what's happening on your very doorstep. And what can you do once you've found that out? This is an action that some of you might have seen in the, in the popular press. Um, this is a factory which makes engines for drones and it's owned by the Israeli arms company Elbit Systems. Uh, it's based in a very, very tiny town um, and it's, it's called in, in Shedstone, which is in Staffordshire. Um, and during the 2014 attacks on Gaza while the bombs were coming down, Elbit Systems um, supply most of the armed drones which are used by the Israeli military. They supply 85% of the armed drones which the Israeli military uses in attacks on Gaza. So when the attacks were taking place, um, some activists from London Palestine Action went and found Elbert's factory in Shenstone and they got up on the roof and they closed it for two days. It cost the company tens of thousands of pounds Although the, act, the company tried to take the activists to court, they actually dropped the case two weeks before they came to trial because Elbert do not want to go through a court <coughs> process with activists and explain exactly what it is in open court that their weaponry does. 
this is another, you don't have to get up on the, the roof of the factory if anyone's like, I lack climbing skills. <laughs> you don't have to get up on the roof of a company. Taking action against the arms trade on your doorstep doesn't have to be a big scary thing when you go and get arrested. Um, this is an action that one of our local campaign against arms trade groups did in Norwich. Norwich has, an arm, Norwich has two arms companies, in fact. They went and found MSI Defence, which is their local arms company, and they arrived for an early morning haunting. So at 7.30, um, when people were trying to get into work and buy a very busy um, motorway and school routes, so they had a lot of um, public attention on them, um, they went down to MSI dressed as the Grim Reapers, and they went down to tell MSI to stop arming the world. They did this uh, the week before the DSEI arms fair happened, um, and of course, MSI were going to exhibit at Dicey, um, and our Norwich group actually followed them there and were protesting at Dicey as well. Um, yeah, so you can get quite creative with local arms company actions. It's also important that we take action to delegitimise the arms trade. We've told you a lot of awful things about the arms trade today. However, the arms trade would like to present itself as an incredibly reasonable business. They would like to talk about tight controls on export. Uh, they would like to present themselves as defence companies rather than uh, weapons manufacturers. And they would like public respectability because without that, they cannot continue their business. Now, in order to gain public respectability, the arms, one of the things that arms companies often do is they sponsor public events and public institutions. Um, they don't do this to be nice. They don't do this as like a wonderful, generous donation. They do this because it helps them to clean up their image and it helps them to position themselves in the market. So um, one of the things that... Uh, which arms company is it that sponsors? Yeah, sorry. Um, so the Science Museum, um, during Farmer International, which is that arms fair my colleague Sarah was mentioning, uh, the one that actually took place during the bombings of Gaza, um, the, every arms fair that takes place usually has a gala dinner associated with it. It's a lovely black tie event where everyone can turn up, drink a bit of champagne, eat some canapes and discuss the deals that they've been making during the day. Now, the dinner for Farnborough was held at the Science Museum. Again, we've talked about how um, arms companies would like to position themselves as at the forefront of science and engineering. So obviously this was a hugely prestigious public building for them to be able to hold their reception in. Luckily, we found out where they were going to be. So we turned up um, and organised a protest, and this is actually a Baroni activist who is blockading one of the... Oh, sorry, she's a, this is one of the Syrian activists who is blockading one of the doors um, to protest um, about Russian Baroni experts, um, that Russian state arms company we showed you the photo of, who were present at Farnborough. Um, we turned up uh, to the dinner, we brought all of our best puns, uh, science puns. Um, some of the signs, in fact, were written uh, from the periodic table, and I didn't fully understand all of them the last week, but I'm sure you medics uh, would have fully enjoyed it. Um, so we turned up to the dinner, and because of the protests, um, the, uh, Britain had actually invited a delegation from Bahrain to attend Farnborough, um, to browse the weaponry on offer, and then to come and attend the black tie event afterwards. My favourite moment of the entire protest was when a bunch of uh, Saeed and others um, that we work with, a bunch of Bahraini activists, managed to turn the Bahraini delegation away from the dinner. They were not allowed access to the building. Um, so turning up and protesting arms trade events can make a huge difference. Really important moments of solidarity like that can happen. 
Um, and arms it's not just museums and public galleries that arms companies are involved in sponsoring, they're also strongly involved in our universities. So if we've got any students out there, I would really encourage you to look up the Campaign Against Arms Trade Universities Network. Arms companies um, are, usually have strong links with engineering departments and with science departments. They might carry out joint research projects with them, they might just provide um, department funding, and they're definitely almost always present at careers fairs, promoting their business um, as a fantastic option for graduates. And obviously, wherever the arms traders, cat activists are turning up to try and disrupt what they're doing. Which brings me to uh, one of the other things that we do that we hope that you will uh, come and join us if you feel so inclined. Uh, we try and impede and block the arms trade. We try and get in the way of the arms trade when it is happening and try and stop them from going about their business. So this is a photo of activists outside the DSEI arms fair. Now, Dicey happens in the uh, Excel Centre in East London. It's a huge conference centre in the London Docklands. It's in the middle of basically a big industrial estate. Um, but Dicey is a fantastic place for us for them to hold it because Dicey only has two gates on the way in. So if you want to hold an arms fair, everything that you want to put on display has to come in through one of these two gates. And this year, uh, when Dicey happened this September, activists had turned up and blockaded the road outside both gates. So as soon as heavy military equipment started turning up for Dicey, um, we were able to get in the road, we were able to block it from going in. Uh, there was a week of really, really creative action. And again, if you're like, oh, I kind of want to do action, but I don't want to get arrested. Um, we had very, very few uh, arrests at Dicey. Um, most of the action um, was people turning up and doing creative action. So this is a photo from the Stop Arming Israel Day of Action um, at Dicey. We had a week of themed action. This is a photo um, of academics taking action at the arms fair as well. There was a day um, of academic action against the arms fair where a bunch of academics who are really interested in politics and international relations held a conference at the gates of the arms fair and used that to block the road. Um, there was a fantastic moment in that where um, a truck had been blocked from going into, um, into Dicey so it couldn't be put on display. Uh, and we turned around and there was an academic giving a keynote on war and moral stupidity which <laughs> <laughs> is one of my favourite moments of Dicey action. Um, which day is this one? It's just the big day of action. Right, and this is a photo from the big day of action. So we finished the week. Different interest groups took on a day of the week. Um, so we also had an alternative border force, because this is when the big refugees welcome marches were happening. There was an alternative border force who checked all of the vehicles on the way into Dicey for any weaponry or you know, other illegal materials they might be attempting to transport. Because we know it's incredibly easy to transport weapons, but it's very, very hard for people to cross borders, and those borders are very heavily militarised. Um, and this is... Do you want to talk about this one, actually? Okay, so it's really um, this is an example of stopping a weapons deal from going ahead. Uh, a document was leaked showing that um, Bahrain was looking to import a massive quantity of tear gas from a South Korean company. Um, there's really, Bahrain has used tear gas as a weapon of war. Um, it, it was used during the protests in February 2011 not just used to disperse protesters, fired at people's heads, used to kill people. Um, it's also been fired into, into people's homes through ventilation shafts, whole villages um, subjected to it. And there's an interesting report from, from Decisions for Human Rights into how tear gas has been used as a weapon in Bahrain. 
Um, Bahrain was looking to import, I think it was 1.6 million canisters, which is a lot more than the entire population of the country. So it was more than one per person um, from a South Korean company. Um, so we were able to link up with activists, led by Bahraini activists, um, but linking up with activists in South Korea who were suppliers and those of us around the world that could add their support, uh, a massive online campaign targeting the South Korean government, the South Korean companies and embassies across the world. Um, and that deal was stopped. Those were, those were 1.6 million canisters of tear gas that were not going to Bahrain. So also making those links because the arms trade is international, making sure that our resistance is global is also really important. Um, so this is some of these pictures. There are a couple from when we protested the arms fair in London in 2013. We, we had quite a lot of grim reapers out and um, a slogan saying this is not okay was quite prevalent. And then one month later, at an arms fair in South Korea, we saw the same pictures and the same, the same, <laughs> the same characters popping up. Um, those activists were back at their arms fair in South Korea wow. last month. We went and joined them. It's one of the most inspiring things I've seen. Now activists in New Zealand this week, next week, this, this week. coming week, are trying to stop their arms fair there. Um, the same things happening in Prague, and the same things happening in France next year. So the arms trade can seem big, massive, <coughs> supported by all of these powerful forces, but there are amazing things happening out there, and we can, we can make a difference. Cool. Okay, uh, what we're going to ask you to do now um, is we're going to do a bit of group work, we're going to do some group discussion. So in a minute I'm going to ask you to shuffle some chairs around um, and to try and find some people that you don't know. So I'm going to ask you to get into small groups, maybe it was sort of eight to ten people. So doing a rough head count, I think we should probably have about six groups. Um, and we're going to ask you to just discuss some questions. So we've had a look um, at some of the uh, some of the groups that took action against Dicey. So we know, uh, for instance, that the arms trade uh, is hugely involved in universities. At Dicey, academics came together to take action to talk about how their university spaces were militarised, about what the arms trade was doing on campus, and they took action together as academics. Now, obviously, we're here for the MEDAC conference, so we're here as, um, well, you guys are here as people who are interested in the medical peace community, and what is powerful about medics speaking out against the arms trade. Um, so I'm going to ask you to get into some little groups um, and share some ideas with each other for maybe about the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And then we're going to do a bit of feedback. Well, I'm going to ask uh, one person to feedback an idea that each group has had. And I'm going to ask you in your groups to think about what could you do in your workplace or your institution, um, if, if you're still at university, to raise awareness of the arms trade. What kind of creative action or things could you do? Is that public talks? Is it workshops? Is it um, holding a stall in the lobby to, to inform people about the arms trade? What could you do in a public space or in your community as a medic? How, how, could, you, how could your community speaking out against the arms trade? What could that look like? We've seen some great examples of creative action, whether that's holding an academic conference at the Gateshead Arms Fair or turning up um, dressed as Grim Reapers, you know, to support your local arms factory. Um, and I'm also going to ask you to think, just at the end, um, and if anyone's interested in putting one of these ideas into action, um, what could you do at an arms trade event? 
So obviously when we turn up um, outside arms fairs, uh, we've got a great opportunity both to try and impede and block um, the arms trade, but also to speak to the public um, and to show them that there is a wide, wide range of people who oppose the arms trade for a huge number of reasons. Next summer, Farnborough International, that arms fair that we've mentioned a couple of times, is coming back to the UK. It's going to happen um, in a little town called Farnborough near Guildford, and we're going to be there or helping to coordinate big protests against it. So um, I know there's definitely some groups um, who are already interested in taking action at Farnborough. Um, if you're part of a group at a university or in a workplace and you want to do a medics against the arms trade action, I would really encourage you to come and do one of those at Farnborough with us and that can look like whatever you want and we can help you organise that, we can help you plan it, give you access to props, materials, training, um, encourage people to come along. So those are the three um, ways to take action that I want you to get into groups and think about in your workplace or your institution, in a public space um, or in your community and at an arms trade event. And we're going to have about 15, 20 minutes of this discussion and I'll time check you at five. So mix yourselves up and get into some groups. He's been trying to get me into Bahrain the prisons for some time without success. Sorry? Do you need to get hold of them? No, I, you know, I can do that through regret. Yes. What are doing with it? I was hoping to colour John as well. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm not too bad. I very soon after. Oh, yeah, they were. Well, if you want to stay in I He was knocking about the back of the wall. Oh, was he? Yeah, he's gone. He's I think he's looking at If I spot him, yeah. Okay. He's going to spot him off. Yeah. 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 Ye
I So we had quite quite a lot of discussion about kind of how to raise these issues in a way with people whose careers actually depend on the military. That it's it's not easy, and it's not easy for us as workers in those situations, and it's not easy to have those conversations. But they're really important conversations because they're with people who are involved and you know potentially influential. So that was one section we didn't really have any conclusions from that, apart from maybe kind of looking for material which is more kind of positive maybe yeah. about alternatives. And then the other was a, a sort of a bit of discussion about kind of ways you can work, what you could do in work with like universities or in a GP's practice or just in a waiting room of a hospital, you know, to what extent can you use those spaces and places to raise the issue and, and you know, how can you square that with work colleagues and your employers. Um, and then a little bit about taking it into schools, that being, you know, sort of with a very <coughs> positive message again. I think that was one of the things that came out. So we didn't have any 
easy answers. It was no. more about like how do you sort of break into those conversations with people. Absolutely, and I think you never know where those conversations will end up as well. Um, I know that some of the stalwarts of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, for instance, started out as Christian Zionists, and some of the conversations that they had along the way um, that helped them move across. Like, it is always worth having those conversations, so hopefully we've armed you with a bit of information um, to take into them. Okay, I'm going to come and pick up our group at the front here, we'll work our way back to the that. So, what, what did you guys talk about? What ideas did you have? Um, I mean, we had quite a few different ideas and topics. Can you stand up? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, we had quite a few ideas and topics, and we've, um, what stood out for me was um, we talked about how it's difficult to get the information out around what you guys have been talking about, but how there's things that are really um, uh, in the limelight at the moment, for example, the, the immigration crisis, um, which kind of really got into, for me, um, you know, the milita militarisation of the Middle East and how that, the, the kind of uh, consequences of that, people die, drowning in the med, what's happening in Cali at the moment. So we can use topics like that that are really in the public limelight to talk about some of the stuff that you guys have been presenting today. Um, also, austerity at the moment, and when, when you talked about subsidisation, 700 million, yeah. and we're talking about austerity at the moment now, that's really a big issue in this country, and public services are being slashed. So again, there's another topic that's really, there's a lot of energy around how we can start to talk about some, again, some of the things that you've been mentioning, and use these um, campaigns and topics to highlight what's going on with the, the, the arms trade. So that was something that came out of our discussions. That's really fantastic. Yeah. Sorry. Did I cut you off? No. No. Oh, grand. Um, yeah. Um, one of our groups in Manchester actually did um, a stall that was all about um, arms export. They did it in Manchester, Piccadilly Gardens, so like right on the main shopping street, and they did it about the subsidy that's given to um, the arms trade. Um, and we've got some. Do you pick one of these up and take these back into your workplaces? I feel like these are really popular. We've got some pace cards um, with the stat on that the £700 million a year subsidy that we give to the arms trade is enough for, to pay the salary of 33,000 NHS nurses for one year. So what our Manchester group did was they had some people dressed up as arms dealers uh, sort of flashing the cash on the stall, but they also had people in scrubs sort of begging for investment in the NHS to talk, to talk about that austerity angle. So it's a really important one to, to pick up on. Uh, what about our group here? Uh, the one behind the one just we just spoke Who's your speaker? <coughs> what did you guys talk about? Hi, um, actually, I guess following on, actually from your point there, <laughs> um, I guess you guys are busy with it anyway already, but um, we were discussing about the Spilatuba uh, campaign or large posters, mm -hmm. similar to what you just said, about you know, comparing, um, uh, this is focused around health, we're not all health workers here today at all, but obviously we know that uh, funding uh, to services, particularly the NHS at the moment, um, which is largely um, blinded from the public, unfortunately, um, is yeah under attack and or at least severely underfunded. And so to make a comparison, just as you have done, with either proportion of um, number of dollars spent on or or even you know number of um, people killed in this conflict. As, as your uh, you know, made in Britain, yeah. um, delivered in Libya or whatever, and then compare that with whether it be you know, number of nurses funded, number of patients treated, etc. Et 
um, would be something that's there's a direct comparison that people can relate to when they're sitting there waiting long and time to accept the only other, well, the other idea we had as well was um, reflecting on the uh, poor response from uh, politicians and government figures about uh, arms policy, etc. Would be Doctor Celebrity. Um, so uh, I think as I come on you know, I was mentioning that uh, Stephen Fry, for example, is based in Norfolk, and he's been involved um, with some of this. So whether you know you have a celebrity in your local area and a group could approach them, whether they've expressed an interesting sort of social concern, that's obviously in the past, um, thing. Bernard, come about, spoke about, oh sorry, <laughs> yeah, um, spoke about uh, refugees um, after the Hamlet you know, um, performance, so approaching uh, celebrities and getting them to speak out um, can often be much more powerful. Fantastic. So some amazing public awareness action ideas coming out there. And yeah, statistics um, and information can be a really powerful thing. Um, I'm going to make you a little scoop round. I'm so sorry. Um, can we hear from the group down there? What did you guys talk about in your group? Um, I'm a student trustee on the trustee board for St. James Union. And um, I'm saying how for our union in the constitution, we're not allowed to have societies that have a political stance, which makes things yeah. quite difficult. That's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as discussing we can maybe outside of the union just form bodies and we do have a global health forum which we can have like a talk. Yeah, and I mean, if you guys ever wanted um, speakers or workshops or stuff, like if we get that's definitely um, something we could do for our university network. And how many groups? Hands up, people, hands up groups who haven't spoken yet. We've got one in the back, we've got one there too. Cool, we've got two more to go, so. My name is Ahmed, I'm a doctor currently studying Masters as well. Uh, we've discussed quite a few different things. Um, one of them in terms of what could you do like, uh, in your workplace at an institution, I think. If we look at, for me personally, and other doctors and medical students with us, uh, it's quite an effective tool being a doctor when it goes presented towards the media. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you guys heard about like in New York City, some of the doctors actually protested to highlight the fact that doctors were being targeted in Syria. Um, and then the way MSF has been able to present the bombing of the hospital in Afghanistan as well as a way to promote peace. And that actually resonates with people because they see health as kind of like a human right. So it's actually quite a strong possibility to do this if you're a doctor to be able to, um, to, be able to protest in that sense. Uh, other issues are, I think like she, she just highlighted just now, uh, you can't stand for any like, political point of views in terms of when you're in university or even in schools we are discussing. Whereas the military can just walk into the schools and promote people to try to sign up to the military. Whereas nobody else can actually do that if you wanted to through various uh, procedures as well, especially the new prevent thing that the government put into place. Um, the, the, the uh, one more point that we mentioned was in terms of the, the weapons manufacturers. There are so many, like you showed us. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we could do in our own like, local communities is to find out exactly, like, some of them might be actually quite small companies, find out where their subsidies come from, where their funding is coming from, and then we can actually have to target them a lot easier than if we go 
tried to take down Lockheed Martin, etc. Um, and then at an arms trade event, uh, I think what, what we could do is a as a quite an effective tool. I think that this day and age of just trying to get into like the Guardian or the Independent isn't priority. I think it's social media awareness is probably the best way to get sustainable change. Uh, is to make one of those like vice-style documentary things where you can you know walk around and interviewing the arms manufacturers as if you're interested in the product and you know, sort of, you know, what size is this gun, etc. You know what caliber is the bullets that it takes, and then how quickly is it going to kill a person? How many times can you destroy it? Just really exposing them for what they're, they're actually, you know, the product that they're saying. Fantastic. So some yes men style tactics coming out of that group. Yeah, and I think again with a very important point. Yeah, it's seen as uncontroversial when the military come into spaces and militarise those spaces. But if you're a peace activist, if you're an anti-military activist. Very, very difficult for you to, to gain a platform. Uh, was there another group? Uh, yeah. Another two groups at the back. Okay. Uh. Um, so, one thing that we talked about, we were quite lucky to have the view of someone who works in investment in our group. Um, and one thing we talked about is that arms is seen as quite a safe and quite a lucrative investment. Um, and so, we're worried that perhaps NHS pensions are being invested in arms trade as. Um, you know, to, to support them. Um, so we thought that it would be good to do research into that to see where that's being invested. And if it comes out that it's being invested in arms trade, then I think health workers would be very keen to campaign to stop that because obviously you go into health work to help people, not to kill them. Hopefully. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. And we do often see big pension funds are very, very heavily invested in arms trade. Um, just on that point, in fact, there isn't an NHS pension fund. It's actually paid out by the Treasury. There isn't, there's no, when you pay your pension contributions, they just go into the government coffers, and then when you are a pensioner, the government pays it out. But there isn't any sort of actual investment. Of the, but unlike most other pension funds, you're absolutely right to highlight... Uh, investigating where pension funds place their money, but the NHS pension isn't funded like that. Yeah, great. Um, and we have one more group at the back. Is that is that right? I think we're we're likely to overrun by about two minutes, so we'll try and uh, keep it nice and quick so we don't keep eating our lunches.
fantastic. Okay, those are some incredible, like, incredible ideas, some practical stuff that we can go away um, and do very, very quickly. Um, just some longer term thinking about, you know, like, how do people get recruited into certain careers, you know, like, what options are made available to them. Um, I'm going to do a quick plug for some materials and then I'm going to give the mic to Andrew to do a very quick plug because we are in danger of slightly running over time. Um, if anyone wants to do a bit of Q&A, if you've got questions for Andrew or you've got questions for us or you want to see uh, the revelation of the final answers on your quiz sheets, come and nab one of us after the session because I think there's one or two answers um, that we may be didn't, didn't get around to discussing. Um, but the rest of you, I'm sure you're very hungry, so I'll let you run off and grab bags of lunches. Um, down at the front here, we've got a little uh, batch of campaigning exams materials, so if you want to keep in touch with us, um, which I would, I hope you would, after meeting us, uh, you can sign up on our sign-up sheet and you can sign up to um, get a cat intro pack, which is an intro, intro to the arms trade, a subscription uh, to our quarterly magazine, um, and a bunch of other good stuff. Um, you'll need to leave us a postal address for that. Um, but you can also tick the box to join our um, monthly e-bulletin. Uh, we won't send you thousands and thousands of emails, don't worry, but we will let you know about action opportunities um, and stuff when it's coming up. So that's usually a really good route to keep you in touch. Um, we've got action postcards to take away. So we showed you some pictures of the Science Museum actions. Uh, if you want to throw one of these in, you can post it to the director of the Science Museum and let him know what you think about um, Armstrong events happening in one of our most loved um, institutions. Uh, you can pick up a copy of that um, postcard with the statistic about nurses' salaries. So if you want to go and take some of these to take onto your campus or to take into your workplace, come and grab um, a little bunch of these. Um, and we've also got some copies of Cat News, which is our, our magazine, um, Intros to the Arms Trade. And for those of you that were very interested in positive alternatives to the arms trade, we've got some of our arms trade renewables leaflets. Um, so come and, come and grab a bunch of those as well. Um, and Andrew, I think has a film coming out soon that you might want to say two words about. Thanks. Uh, just before I do that, one thing to bear in mind, a couple of the groups were speaking about the fact that they're not allowed to engage in sort of political activities on campus or whatever the case is. I have a little organization called Corruption Watch. And we often go into schools to talk about corruption, which bizarrely is seen as non-political. And the reality of being told that you can't engage in any political meetings or anything similar is in itself a political stance, quite obviously. So if you ever wanted to use my organization or others that are set up for similar purposes, we would be very happy to come and talk to you with CAT people under the auspices of Corruption Watch, which bizarrely administrations find non-political. In addition to that, um, we have a film coming out of the book that I did. Um, the film is also called Shadow World. It has been produced by an American production company and made by a brilliant Belgian director. So it's a very quirky and different documentary. It's not a series of people just talking about the arms trade. Um, we're showing five minutes of it at the event at 6.30 tonight, if any of you are going to be there. But it'll premiere early next year and it'll be available in the UK from about April. So if anybody would like us to come and show the film to any of your organizations or groups of friends or whatever, please do be in touch with me. Thanks. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the session. Um, do go get to lunch now um, and come and chat to us if you have questions. But I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. It's a fantastic event. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who would like to know, lunch is going to be served in the corridors around the light, which is the central room that we have the festival.
be on